over the age of 30 and listening to this podcast, there is a very good chance that you know every single line to this song. And with good reason, too. Ghostbusters is a cultural touchstone for anyone living at the end of the 20th century. This movie struck gold on every single level when it was made. Situational comedy, a cast of memorable characters, and more than a touch of reality. Reality? Ghostbusters? That can't be right. Believe it or not, the scientific analysis of ghostly phenomenon depicted in the movie is based on reality. When Peter Venkman has two students hooked up to electrodes and is asking them to guess the shape printed on a random card, he is using Zener cards a deck of cards created by Carl Zenner for his colleague J.B. Rhine, who was conducting parapsychological studies in the 1930s. The experiment that Venkman was conducting was similar to those done by the U.S. government for their Stargate project, a secret defense intelligence agency project that was founded by the U.S. Army only four years prior to the release of Ghostbusters which I'm sure caused the U.S. government to scrutinize Dan Aykroyd and Harold Ramis a bit closer. The movie also used jargon like psychokinetic energy and ectoplasm. But guess what? Those terms were close to a hundred years old by the time we were viewing them on the big screen. In fact, there is a very good reason this movie was packed full of super esoteric terms and concepts. Because the man at the forefront of the spiritualism movement in the late 1800s and early 1900s was Dr. Samuel Augustus Aykroyd, the great-grandfather to none other than writer, actor, musician, and comedian Dan Aykroyd. Tonight we are going to take a look at the book A History of Ghosts, The True Story of Seances, Mediums, Ghosts and Ghostbusters by Peter H. Aykroyd, Dan Aykroyd's father. Now get ready, this is quite a tale. And the best part? It's all true. I'm your host Jason, and you're listening to the Esoteric Book Club. Welcome back, Goblins! Before we get started, I want to take a moment to thank the members of the Esoteric Archive. At the Archivist level, I want to thank Kylie H. and Soul Rising Studios. And at the Chronicler level, I'd like to thank Annie K. Of course, special thanks goes out to Grand Inquisitor Samantha. Your contributions help with server costs reading materials, and with keeping the Rage Monster subdued with a steady supply of coffee. 
If you would like to join the archive, you can do so for as little as $1 a month. Of course, those pledging $3 or more a month get extended episodes, which at this point are almost double the length of the regular episode. Those pledging $8 or more get a shout-out on future episodes and a warm, tingly sensation that may or may not be your primal instincts kicking in because of the giant hairy monster lurking on the edge of your woods. Seriously, you might want to go close your curtains. All of this can be found at patreon.com forward slash esoteric book club. But enough about all that. You're here to learn about ghosts. So without further ado, let's get weird. May 12th, 1929, Sydenham, Ontario. Four cars, all black, all polished for the trip from town, roll down the long lane to the farmhouse, the crunch of gravel beneath the tires momentarily silencing the birds. Dust settles on the gleaming finishes of the automobiles, and they pull up beside a farmhouse, parking randomly on the grass. A whippet, a durant, a Willis Knight, and a Dodge. The occupants alight. Four men in three-piece suits with well-shined shoes form a little knot. The women, four of them as well, all in black with stylish hats, form a companion group. The faces are familiar. I have seen them all before, at church or in town. These people always have something friendly to say to me. But from here, in my hiding place among the newly budding lilac bushes, they appear unapproachable. Their minds are on something else. I slip unobserved across the lawn to the back of the house and towards the outside cellar entrance. The cellar stairs are damp, and as I pull open one side of the heavy horizontal doors, I smell the rich, loamy scent of ripened apples. The rest of the family is puzzled by my favored mode of entry, but I am quite content entering the house this way. It gives me access to experiences I might otherwise miss. At age seven, I am as curious as they come. I cross the cellar, which is dimly lit by the slanting sunlight entering through the outside door. I climb up the inside cellar stairs and kneel patiently at the top, waiting. The cellar door is open a crack. From here, I can see the kitchen in one direction and, in the other, the fireplace and the table in the parlor. Grandpa looks out the parlor window, then nods towards the kitchen, where I know my grandma is setting out the tea things. It's time, my dear, Grandpa says to her quietly. He turns and walks out the front door and stands on the veranda, his hands clasped loosely behind his back. The group, with Grandpa bringing up the rear, enters the farmhouse. They are chatting quietly. Once in the parlor, they are greeted by Grandma, a plump, smiling lady. I see that she is also dressed in black, as if for a funeral. Grandpa has invited the guests to be seated, and I must alter my position for a better view. I sense that it is important for me to see, but remain unseen, for I am supposed to be in my bedroom preparing for bed. The unlit coal oil lamp stands on the sideboard, waiting to do its part when dusk turns to dark. I wedge myself carefully between the wall and the inside of the cellar door, sliding silently into a seated position. Comfort will be crucial. It's going to be a long night. The drapes are drawn, 
but there is still a faint light in the room. As guests file into the parlor, they nod significantly to a man already seated at the table, and then take their places, leaving vacant chairs on either side of him. Once the guests are seated, Grandpa takes the chair to the young man's left. Grandma follows and occupies the last chair to the young man's right. For the first time, I notice that the young man is dressed differently from the others. His attire is far more casual. An open-collar work shirt and a cardigan sweater in a curious shade. Grandpa speaks. Please hold hands around the table. Try to think positive thoughts. Pray silently if you wish. The young man stubs out his cigarette. He leans back, closes his eyes, and slips into a trance. In the deafening pin-drop silence, it is as if some curtain is about to rise. But the show is an unusual one. These guests have not traveled from town to see a play or hear a concert. This is a meeting of Dr. Aykroyd's circle. A seance is about to begin, and the people present are here to engage in an unusual form of communication. They have come from town to talk to the dead. This is the recollection of the author Peter Aykroyd, who witnessed firsthand, and eventually participated in, the highly organized seances hosted by his grandfather, Dr. Augustus Aykroyd. Fifty years later, after the passing of Dr. Aykroyd, Peter and his sister were cleaning out his farmhouse. They had almost finished, and the only thing left to do was to empty out the basement, and even that was mostly barren. Tucked away in the corner of what was once a coal storage bin, they found an odd blue trunk. The clasp holding it together had rusted, but a little leverage from a nearby screwdriver popped it open easily. They expected to find it packed with junk, but instead they found a photo album, a scrapbook of newspaper clippings, a recipe collection, Dr. Aykroyd's diploma from Queen's University dated 1913, and a bundle of notebooks tied neatly together with kitchen twine. What they initially thought were his personal journals turned out to be an absolute goldmine of paranormal research. Within those pages, dating from 1905 to 1931, were handwritten notes, theories, and observations made by Dr. Aykroyd relating to parapsychology as well as first-hand accounts from countless seances held within this home. These notebooks, along with some extensive genealogical and historical research, formed the foundation for this book. Who was Dr. Samuel Augustus Aykroyd? Dr. A, as he's oftentimes referred to in this book, was born on March 22, 1855, in rural Ontario. He was the first of 14 children and grew up on a 150-acre plot of land bordering Lake Loughborough. This land was purchased by his grandfather from the English crown in 1826. Augustus not only stayed in school, but he actually graduated from high school. At this time, you see, it was rare for people just to stay in primary school, let alone graduate. 
After high school, he continued his education to get his teaching certification, and then moved to the town of Emerald for his first teaching assignment. It was here that he met Ellen Jane Wemp, who would later become his wife in 1884. It seems that Augustus was not pleased teaching in a dirty, drafty, one-room schoolhouse, because he was soon transferred to another school in Kingston Township. One problem remained, though. Much like today, teachers' salaries in the 1880s were, quote, abysmally low. With little guarantee of future wage increases and dreams that reached far beyond his current station, Augustus looked to another profession. At the age of 34, with his family in tow, he enrolled at the University of Toronto's School of Dentistry of the Royal College of Dental Surgeons. Whew, that's a mouthful. He graduated with his DDS degree in 1891 and opened his own practice in 1892. Augustus was now Dr. Aykroyd. To give you an idea of what dentistry was like in the 1890s, we need to look to an unlikely source. Treadle-powered sewing machines. Electricity, you see, was still not available to run dentistry equipment. So, much like pedal-driven sewing machines, dental drills were run by manpower. Not only that, but painkillers were still not entirely refined by this time so various methods were attempted, one of which was mesmerism. Mesmerism was introduced in the 1700s by Franz Mesmer. While the deep trance state induced by Mesmer was mostly a novelty, one of his students, Count Maxime de Pousseyer, realized that mesmerism could have a multitude of benefits as a form of therapy. In 1841, British physician James Braid began experimenting with mesmerism as a form of anesthesia. Now, while the book points out that Dr. A probably never used mesmerism in his dentistry practice, it does give you an idea of the conditions in which he was working. There's no doubt that he would have at least heard of its use at some point in his professional career. Dr. A, you see, considered himself, quote, a humble student seeking knowledge. It's this innate curiosity that drove him to begin looking into the practice known as spiritualism. This book defines spiritualism as, quote, the belief that departed spirits communicate with and show themselves to the living, especially when they do so through mediums. It also includes the system of doctrines and practices founded on this belief. According to the Encyclopedia of Ghosts and Spirits by Rosemary Ellen Guiley, spiritualism is a 19th century social and religious movement that derived its appeal from spirit communications and evidence in support of survival after death. The foundations of spiritualism were already in place before Dr. Aykroyd was even born, but they didn't really fully form until the turn of the century. One of these foundational pieces of spiritualism came from the clairvoyant and traveling showman Andrew Jackson Davis. This man was described by Sir Arthur Conan Doyle in 1926 as, quote, 
a lad with few natural advantages. It seems that Davis was the rather frail, uneducated son of a drunken cobbler and a superstitious and equally uneducated mother. But by the age of 20, he had written what Doyle described as one of the most profound and original books of philosophy ever produced. Davis was a clairvoyant in the most literal way possible. He could see without using his eyes. When he first started out, he would read letters and tell time blindfolded as a parlor trick. Eventually, it was revealed that his second sight allowed him to see through the human body as if it were transparent. This ability helped him to diagnose illnesses and ailments by literally seeing people's organs. He said that each organ stood out clearly with a brightness that diminished if the organ was diseased. Eventually, Davis was given the moniker of the Poughkeepsie Seer, based on this unique ability. Now, up to this point, this all sounds like a pretty unique and lucrative party trick, right? What's unique about Davis, though, is that he never charged for his services. His notoriety drew the attention of Dr. George Bush, professor of Hebrew at New York University. No, not that George Bush. There's no relation. Davis, while entranced, was able to answer trivia and accurately quote Hebrew scripture which led Dr. Bush to become one of his biggest proponents. While the doctor was a believer in Davis's abilities, his description of the young man was... less than kind. Quote, The circumference of his head is unusually small. If size is a measure of power, then this youth's mental capacity is unusually limited. He had not dwelt amid refining influence manners ungentle and awkward. He has not read a book save one, the Bible. He knows nothing of grammar or the rules of language. Nor is he associated with literacy or scientific persons. So, Davis was kind of a country bumpkin that, while in trance, became a philosopher. His writings were entitled Harmonial Philosophy, and included a description of the soul that would later become a large piece of spiritualism. According to Davis, the soul is what animates the body, but the spirit is what animates the soul. Granted, this is my summary of his philosophy. Trust me, this is far more coherent than his original text. Dr. Bush's description of him knowing nothing of grammar or rules of language yeah, that was pretty accurate. On March 31st, 1848, Davis made a cryptic prediction. About daylight this morning, a warm breathing passed over my face, and I heard a voice, tender and strong, saying, Brother, the good work has begun. Behold, a living demonstration is born. It is believed by spiritualists that this prediction was in reference to the Fox sisters. 
If you have ever looked into spiritualism previously, or even into mediumship, you have probably heard of the Fox Sisters. On March 31, 1848, these sisters were ages 14 and 11, and they were about to get the attention of the entire world. Around 8 p.m., their father John Fox ran to the neighbor's house begging for help. He couldn't explain what was happening, but it had clearly terrified him and his family. When the neighbor arrived, they found the Fox women huddled in the corner of the girl's bedroom while loud banging and rapping was heard coming from the walls of the room. Eventually, the oldest daughter, Kate, began to knock on the walls in response. And that is when things got really weird. The family and witnesses listened as the knocking began answering in response to questions that Mrs. Fox posed to the noisy spirit. It produced answers to family members' ages, the ages of the neighbors who were in attendance, and eventually, they were able to get more detailed information. This ghost, it seems, had a story to tell. In life, the spirit was a door-to-door -door peddler who, unfortunately, came to meet the original occupants of the Fox's home, John Bell. It was said that Bell offered him a place to stay for the night and then later murdered him in his sleep with a butcher knife. His body was then buried ten feet beneath the dirt floor of the basement. A previous employee of John Bell later confirmed the arrival and odd disappearance of a traveling salesman in town. The next day, excavations began in the Fox's basement, and while human hair and bones were found, no full skeleton remained. By the end of the day, 300 people had crowded into the Fox's home. In the days that followed, the previous tenants, not the Bells, of course, revealed that they had moved because of the incessant, strange noises produced in the home. Only a few days after the event began, Mrs. Fox was so stressed that her hair had turned entirely white. The girls, Kate and Maggie, were receiving no respite from the ghostly knocks, so they were sent to live with separate relatives. The knocking, though, didn't remain with the home. The spirit, now known as Mr. Splitfoot, had attached itself to the girls and followed them to their separate abodes. The girls did their best to ignore the event, but that just incensed Mr. Splitfoot, who began to pinch and prick them in their sleep, and, when they weren't paying enough attention to him, would throw chunks of firewood at them. The attacks only subsided once the girls began to interact with Mr. Splitfoot again, and so the two girls were reunited. What's strange is that after these events, seances across the country began experiencing extremely unsettling occurrences. Tables would move. People would levitate. Spirit writing would appear out of thin air and objects would materialize, only to vanish in front of people's eyes. What began in Hydesville, New York, 
seem to have triggered a much more widespread phenomena. Now, in all fairness, the Fox sisters are somewhat infamous as well. They eventually went on tour, performing for audiences and in the homes of wealthy and powerful individuals. Granted, this was a trend for the time since there was no television or radio. Hosts had to provide entertainment, so those who could afford it would hire performers of all types. Accusations of fraud were rampant around the sisters, and it even went as far as having a relative confess that the girls were merely cracking their knees and toe knuckles to produce loud knocking sounds. Despite this, the Fox sisters went on to become a worldwide phenomena. Meanwhile, a small village was formed on the shores of Lake Casadega, New York. This village was one of the first in the state to receive electricity, which earned it the moniker of the City of Light. Unfortunately, it also earned the nicknames of Spooksville and Sillydale. But despite this, the small retreat for spiritualists and mediums came to be known by the name Lilydale. This community quickly grew into a full-fledged destination location for the Victorian era. It had rental cottages, restaurants, and hotels, making it a perfect place to visit for those with spiritual inclination. In fact, Lilydale is probably where Dr. Aykroyd had his first encounter with spiritualism. While Dr. A's seances at Lilydale were not recorded in any great detail, he did record the names of several entities that made their presence known. What he never could have guessed was that 14 years later, he would speak to them again, this time through the intervention of an entirely different medium. Two entities that Dr. Aykroyd had spoken to previously returned for conversation, while a third returned with a cryptic message. It's Christy! Don't you remember me? When the doctor confessed that he did not remember, the entity continued. Don't you remember me and the message on the slates? Fourteen years earlier in Lilydale, an unnamed entity had delivered messages to Dr. Aykroyd by materializing words on a slate tile. I told you I would speak to you sometime, when I got the chance. And here I am. Christy, you see, was the surname of a rather boisterous theater actor. At the end of Christy's interactions with the group, he once again turned to Augustus. Well, what do you know now, doctor? he asked. Dr. Aykroyd, as thoughtful as ever, replied, Sometimes, I think I know quite a lot. And, then again, I think that I don't know anything. Not to let anyone have the last word, the spirit replied, It is well to not know too much, because then you will not get into trouble. It seems that this experience was more than enough to get Dr. Aykroyd hooked on the idea of spiritualism. In 1920, he began hosting his own seances in his home. By invite only, of course. 
1929, young Peter Aykroyd snuck into the basement stairwell of the old farmhouse to witness one of his grandfather's seances. He sat in the darkness and tried to be as quiet as a seven-year-old can be. He only made it as far as the opening silent prayer before the overwhelming urge to scratch an itch seized him and he shuffled about, only to bump into a broom that was standing against the wall of the stairwell, which naturally fell into a basketful of canning lids, which of course also fell and spilled down the stairs. When the noise subsided, the voice of the medium, Walter Ashurst, called out, Would the young gentleman in the cellar care to join the circle? From that day forward, any time Peter was visiting the Ackroyd farm, he was invited to participate in their seances. All of this took place in the 20s, but it seems that Dr. Ackroyd had already established a name for himself as someone interested in the topic. In 1917, he was approached on the street by a man who introduced himself and said, I, I think I'm a medium. Can you help me find out? Dr. A helped him gain training from an experienced local medium, and over the course of four years, they established a working partnership until finally, Mr. Ashurst became the sole medium used in Dr. Aykroyd's seances. These early seances weren't the most pleasant for Mr. Ashurst either. He would begin by describing the random spirits that would appear. Unfortunately, along with their random ailments, afflictions, and pains that accompanied them. It was believed by sitters that these afflictions were representative of the spirit's manner of death. After 20 minutes of this, Ashurst would slip into a trance, in which he would channel information without the unfortunate side effects mentioned earlier. When he regained consciousness, he would be unaware of the passage of time or what he said while entranced. He would then cough, and then ask for a cigarette. If it sounds like I have only just begun to touch upon the spiritualism movement and its impact on the world, you'd be right. Everything you just heard, as fascinating as it is, is just the first chapter of this book. The remaining chapters are entitled Ghosts Abroad, the International Stage, Ghosts Today, Extraordinary Skills, and finally, From Seance to Screen. Before I end the show, let's talk about the book itself. First, it is incredibly well written and is rather engaging. There is a nice flow between the history and the narrative, and that makes it a pleasure to read. It's fascinating to hear the story from both a personal level and from the broader historical point of view. The author did a fantastic job inserting information at key points in the narrative. If there wasn't enough information to dedicate a whole section, he would embed it as an aside. More importantly, each chapter has its own endnotes and citations, which lend credence to the information that is provided. The downside? The downside is that this book is no longer in publication, and the cheapest physical copy, as of the writing of this podcast, is currently $105 on Amazon. And that's the hardback version. 
Apparently, the paperback version had an even more limited release, because that is selling for $688 used. On the other hand, I found some former library copies for a reasonable price, although most of them are without a dust jacket, which just seems weird to me. That said, you can get a digital version for just $13.99, which is a bit expensive for a digital book, but when compared to the price of the physical copy, it's a steal. Do I recommend this book? Absolutely! I am a huge history nerd and a paranormal junkie, so this book checked off a bunch of boxes for me. It's well-written, well-researched, and when it comes down to it, it's just fun. If you want to get yourself a copy, I'll post a link to the digital version in the show notes. If you want a physical copy, you should be able to find some at a reasonable rate with minimal Google searching. Once again, this was A History of Ghosts, The True Story of Seances, Mediums, Ghosts, and Ghostbusters by Peter H. Aykroyd. The Esoteric Book Club can be found on Facebook, Instagram, Patreon, and at esotericbookclub.org. Intro and outro music is from the song Fight Don't Fight and is courtesy of Sarah Rudy and her band Hello June. If you want to find more of their work, you can locate them at bandcamp.com forward slash hello June or at wearehellojune.com. Members of the Esoteric Archive, stick around. We're going to delve into the later chapters of this book. For the rest of you, until next time, remember... Alright, goblins, it's time once again to open up the Esoteric Archive. It came upon them like a smallpox, and the land was spotted with mediums before the wise and prudent had had time to lodge the first half-dozen in a madhouse. Augustus de Morgan, British Journalist, 1863 Clearly, not everybody was as enamored with spiritualism as Americans and Canadians.